Good morning, beloved Orangewood. How's everybody this morning? Good Thanksgiving? I know yesterday my family and I were back from our uh, Thanksgiving trek away, and we went through uh, that big town that had that amazing game uh, yesterday, Columbia, South Carolina. Um, and so uh, I got you, didn't I? I got you. All right. You know, some of you are like, oh, no, here he goes. I didn't go that route. Uh, but I do want to say this. No matter what jersey you pulled on yesterday, and no matter who you cheered for, the reality is, is we're God's family, and we come here today as his people that unites us, unites us not just because of a, a university we support, but unites us because of a God who loves us, a God who would, who would love us so deeply that he would send his son to come and rescue us. He would send his son, and that rescue mission would cost him his very life. And so, wow, we are uh, connected by the blood of the lamb, and what a great connection that is. And an Advent season, we celebrate the reality of the depth of God's love. So we're going to look at Advent this, uh, this year. I'm excited about it. A little different way, we're going to look at the minor prophets. I'll tell you a little bit more about that in a minute. But if you can find it, turn your Bibles to Zephaniah. Go. Okay, let me so. Uh, no, no, no one needs to look at you. It's also listed in your bulletin for you. But not many messages in Advent necessarily start in Zephaniah. So I'm excited about it. You know, I mean, you guys are getting Zephaniah today. Uh, how exciting is that? Well, again, the, the Advent season is really is the, the coming of Christ, the arrival of a promised Messiah. And the Bible is a story that God would love us enough that he would send a rescuer for us. And as Jesus came, as his Messiah came, there was proclamations by the angels that there would be peace on earth and goodwill to men. So here we are in a season that celebrates, you ready for this, peace on earth, goodwill to men. Do you want to ask a question? Do you want to say, well, man, this happened a long time ago. It was promised even longer than that. Where is the peace? One of the things I did is we sat around the uh, table at Thanksgiving with my entire family. What a blessed event that is, isn't it? Uh, Is to talk to the kids about the threats of the world. And to say, back in my day, and I'm sure every time a parent says, back in my day, their eyes roll back in their head, and they think, oh no, here goes dad again. But back in my day was the threat of nuclear war, nuclear holocaust, and we were all terrified of Russia. I mean, that's the year I grew up in. I mean, I graduated in high school in 83. I kind of went through that Cold War. Uh, as a matter of fact, if you saw the movie Bridge of Spies, have you seen that movie, uh, Tom Hanks? Great, great movie. That guy, Tom Hanks. A couple more movies. He's going to get this acting thing down. That guy's incredible. Um, but it, it showed in there a little clip. It showed uh, the schools back in that day having... Um, Uh, preparing for a nuclear attack by all the school kids getting under their desk. That was the best idea they came up with right there, you know. Hey, what are we going to do? I mean, if we're going to get attacked by Russia, let's get all the kids and let's have them hide under their desk because somehow that will uh, keep you safe, really. Um, Well, that threat is long since gone. We don't really worry about Russia. I mean, uh, Putin is an interesting individual. But today's threats are much different. I mean, just think of what happened on November 13th in Paris. Uh, uh, Think about what happened uh, over and over again with ISIS terror attacks. And and you want to say, now where is this peace on earth? I mean, Jesus came, and and where's this goodwill to men? Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, if you uh, follow uh, American literature, that may be a name that's familiar for you. Uh, He actually wrote a, a Christmas carol, among the many things he wrote is when I heard the bells on Christmas Eve. Anybody know it? 
Well, it's interesting. He, uh, he wrote that. Uh, if you look at the words, I'm going to tell them to you in just a moment. It was at a low point in his life. I mean, Christmas to him was, was kind of in his face in a way that he had such a hole in his life. Do you? He had such brokenness in your life, his life. Maybe that's some of you. You see, he lost his wife, his beloved wife. He lost tragically. And, and the way she died, I mean, she, she was burned up. And the way, the way that she caught fire was just, it was horrific. She was trying to save a locket of hair from one of their children. And, and she was pouring some hot wax uh, upon that to try to get it. And, and, and some spilled on her dress and she didn't know it. And apparently uh, the breeze and things had just caught. And all of a sudden she ignited. And although she got out of the children's presence and went to her husband, her tr- husband tried to save her. And the next day she passed away. Their oldest son, Charles, uh, was severely uh, injured in the Civil War, like many of the young, uh, young sons at, at that time of year, at that time of uh, uh, history. And so here it is, it's right during the end of the Civil War, and he hears the bells on Christmas Eve, and he writes this, I heard the bells on Christmas Day, I should say, their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor does he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail with peace on earth, goodwill to men. Christmas is the proclamation that that peace has begun, that that peace has arrived. Not just any peace, but but God's peace has come to earth, and it's going to come again. It has to, because it's clearly not fully here. The Bible story is the story of how God himself, I mean, not he doesn't send somebody else, but, but God himself shows up in his story. And God himself shows up in his story to, to secure what only God can secure, peace. Peace on earth and and even peace in heaven through his son, Jesus, that we call, and the Bible said, Emmanuel, God with us. Well, this Advent season, I mentioned to you that we'll be looking through the lens of the minor prophets. And the minor prophets and their, their unique way of saying, this is what's going to come. Here's the Messiah. So we'll look to their prophecy before Jesus arrived and we'll look back to see what actually showed up. I mean, here's what they said would come and and look what God actually delivered. Now, let me tell you a little bit about the minor prophets. Don't get lost. Let me just tell you real quickly. The one story of the Bible that unfolds, it, it contains different genres or different types of the story. It begins with the law, the, the Pentateuch. It tells us the law of God. And, and then it tells us the history, the history of the Israelites and, and God's people. In there you'll find poetry like the Psalms and the Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and other, other poetic ways of describing who God is. And then you have the major prophets and the minor prophets. Anybody know the difference between a major prophet and a minor prophet? You wonder is the difference between a major leaguer and a minor leaguer. I mean, the major leaguers are real good. The minor leaguers, where they're working hard, they're in double A, they hope to make it to the, that, that, you know, the Isaiah level someday. No, the difference between a major prophet and a minor prophet is this. Ready for this? How much they wrote. <laughs> so minor prophets just didn't have as much to say. 
as guys like Jeremiah or, or guys like Daniel or guys like Isaiah, the major prophets, the minor prophets, they didn't have quite as much to say. I mean, they just kind of told their story a little more succinctly. It was a shorter paper to write than that long, voluminous one. And then you get to the Gospels in the New Testament. And then you have the book of Acts, which is New Testament history. And then you have these letters called epistles and pastoral epistles. Then you have Revelation that's, again, kind of prophecy of what's to come. That's the story of the Bible right there. Well, we're going to go back and we're going to look at the minor prophets and what they would have to say to understand who is this Jesus, this newborn king born in a manger. So if you look at your bulletin, you'll find the title that says, Do You Hear What I Hear? And, and really what I want to say is, do you hear the voice of the minor prophets? Can you hear them in Christmas? Can you hear the prophet Zephaniah of what he prophesied would come? I got to tell you, Zephaniah, he probably felt a little bit the way Longfellow felt. He started off by saying, where's the peace on earth? I mean, Zephaniah 1, 1 and 2, we're going to read it, is about as dark as it gets. But you see, you can't, listen, you can't really understand the good news of the Bible until you understand the bad news. You can't understand what's to come and what has come until you, you understand the darkness that is here because of sin and rebellion from God. So as we hear, uh, out of the darkness comes hope. Out of the darkness comes a first Christmas carol. All right, how many young people here know this quote? The best way to pre- spread Christmas cheer Very good. That's awesome. The best way to spread Christmas cheer is to singing loud, is singing loud for all to hear. That's a famous quote by Buddy the Elf uh, and, the, and the, uh, the movie Elf. All right. If you don't know it, rent it. It's a, it's, it's a good one. But the best way to spread Christmas cheer is singing loud for all to hear. But here's the cool thing. We got to hear the voices of the past for us to understand the song. You hear that? Here's the really cool thing. I, I, I'm so excited to tell you this. I, I got to get to the punchline. Do you know who sings the first Christmas carol? Do you know who sings the first song? Do you know whose voice leads the choir? It's God's. And we realize sometimes that, that we're the ones singing Christmas carols to him. But listen, this morning we're going to look at the reality is this, is that God sings the first Christmas carol. And he sings it about you and me. And he sings it over us. Because he's a father who loves his children. Let's look to Zephaniah. I have mine tabbed, so I didn't have to embarrass myself trying to look for it. Zephaniah 1, we're going to look at verses 1 and 2. Uh, one and two. Actually, uh, uh, I'm going to jump to 2 and just read chapter, uh, verse 2. And then I'm going to go to uh, what Jack read, chapter 3, verses 14 through 20. Let's read Zephaniah chapter 1. Remember, this is God's word, major prophet, minor prophet, law, you know, prophets, poets. This is all God's story. He says this. Start your book this way. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Nice warm, fuzzy start. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Now here's a prophet who's writing about the truth that God is holy and there is a judgment coming. But look at the good news that he turns to and he realizes with a Savior that is to come in Zephaniah 3, verses 14 through 20. 
Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all of your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, if you can see that that's all capitalized, that's the Yahweh, that's the name of the Lord. The King of Israel, Yahweh, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord, there's that capital L-O-R-D, again, Yahweh, the name of the Lord. The Lord, your God, he's in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. I will gather those of, of you who mourn for the festival so that you no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors, and I will save the lame and gather the outcast. I will change their shame into praise and renown in all of the earth. At that time I will bring you in, at that time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised. I'll make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes. Before your very eyes, says the Lord. Let us pray. Father, in this one little passage, we see incredible darkness and incredible brightness. Despair and hope. All within a little book called Zephaniah. God, in so many ways, that reflects the entire story of the Bible. From utter darkness comes a light. And that light will never be extinguished by the dark. And that light is Jesus, the light of the world. And in this, God, we have reason to both wail and reason to rejoice. And so, Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would show us our lives truthfully, that we would see our own sin and acknowledge how far we have fallen from a holy God. But, God, we would also see your grace and your mercy as we see it in the face of your Son, Oh God, you are a God who sings. A God who sings a love song to his people. God, can we hear that song this morning? Would you give us ears to hear and tune in to your voice? Minds that are understanding your frequency is delivered here in your word, that that hearts will embrace your truth, that you would give us feet that would walk in a manner worthy of your name and in cadence to your great love song for us. May we realize that if we have the privilege to sing your praises, it's because you have given us that privilege. And you were the first one to love and the first one to sing. God, the things that I say that are wrong are merely my opinion. May those things fall away and be forgotten. But the things that are said that are true and contain the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, would you use those things to make us more like your son, our Savior, Jesus? And it's in his matchless name that we pray. Amen. If you'd like to follow along with me, you'll find a bulletin in your outline. And the first thing we'll see from this incredible little passage of Zephaniah that God says that he himself will dwell with us. 
That's what Christmas is about. That it's not enough that God sent someone else to come and tell us of his love. It's not enough that God would send someone else who might be mighty and strong to come and rescue us. But it's God himself who came to dwell and be with us. This is what Isaiah, by the way, a major prophet, he promised. He made this peculiar promise in Isaiah 7, verse 14. You've heard it. You'll hear it again throughout the Advent season. That a virgin will be with child and she will bear a son and you will call his name Emmanuel. You will give him a name which is really more of a title. Emmanuel meaning God with us. That the story of Christmas is that, that God has promised to be with us through a birth of a virgin, through uh, this child of God. And, and this child will be an amazing child. He'll, he'll be fully man, but he'll also be fully God. In verse 15, we see, again, we read these things, and we read these things on this side of the cross and on this side of Bethlehem, and they probably sound familiar to us. But i got to tell you, this is incredible radical language to God's people. Because it says in verse 15, the king of Israel, and they're, they're thinking like David, they're thinking Solomon, they're, they're thinking the promised one of God to come. He said this, the king of Israel, it says, the Lord, let me tell you who this king is. This king is God Almighty, the one who is coming. This king in your midst, he's God. God is going to be our king. That was all those earthly kings like David and Solomon and, and Rehoboam. They all, they all just pointed to the one who would come. He's basically saying that God himself is going to show up in your midst. You think that if the prophet is saying that, by the way, you're going to have a king and he's going to be God, how would Bethlehem look to them? How would the manger look to them? I mean, how would be a little boy wrapped in swaddling cloths look to the fact of Zephaniah who says, by the way, a king is going to be born and the king's going to be God Almighty. Yahweh is going to come in human form. He's going to come as a man, the second person of the Trinity. Jesus is coming. And you're going to find this little guy wrapped in swaddling cloth and laying in a manger, and that's going to be the king of the world. I wonder if people are like, I'm a little confused. Kings come this way. A newborn king born in a stable. Again, verse 17 wants to reinforce what 15 says. It says, the Lord your God is in your midst. I mean, again, this is not just a, a great prophet. This is more. This is not just an earthly king. This is more. Can't you see how they were confused? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't this Jesus? Didn't we watch him grow up here in Nazareth? Didn't we see him? Didn't he, didn't he go to school with our, our own kids? This is the Lord is in our midst. It's the astonishing truth of the Christmas story. And if it doesn't stagger you a little bit, if it doesn't push you to the cusp of belief, if it doesn't make you say, are you kidding me? I don't think you understand the depth of what's happening in the Bible story. But that's what's saying. God dwells with us. He has come to dwell with us. He will forever dwell with us. And listen, the day's coming, according to the Bible, according to his promises, that we will dwell together face to face. And oh, how I long for it. The day's coming where sin will, he's dealt with the power of sin. He's dealt with the penalty of sin. But there's a day coming that the Bible says that he's going to take away the presence of sin. And we will be with him and we will be like him. 
And we got a taste of it now. In every Advent season, we remember that taste that God is with us. See, God himself came to dwell with us, but secondly, God himself will save us. What does it say about us that God himself has to say of us, by the way? What does it say about us? I mean, I, I see these guys here, uh, Marines, right? You guys are Marines? I want to send in the best. You know, I want to send in, what does it say when you need Marines to come help you? Now, you know, you got to get, you got to get the real strength there. When God himself says, I'm going to show up myself and save you, how much do we need saving? <laughs> how utterly lost are we if God himself has to come and rescue us? And here's how he rescues us. It says in verse 15, he has taken away the judgment against us. And by the way, he's holy God. Remember how Zephaniah starts. God is saying, I'm going to wipe them all out because I'm holy God. I got to deal with sin. And listen, it's not that God's this big, uh, you know, ogre that he just hates people. I mean, God loves us. He sings over us. But God is holy. So you have this, you have this, let's say it's a theological dilemma. A loving God and a just God, what do you do? A loving God and a holy God, how do they meet? And he says, God himself says, I'm going to take away your judgments. Well, how does he do that? Does he just ignore them? Does he put them, like, like pretend they didn't happen? Does he, does he see us for who we really aren't? No. The incredible story of the God Bible is this, is that he became our judgment. God maintained his holiness. He, he, he maintained his justice by taking his own son who would come and live the life that we're supposed to live, die the death we deserve to die, and, and place all the judgment on him. You see, that's why God can still be just. And that's why God can still be merciful. And that's why God can still be holy because he took away the judgment by sending us his son to be our judgment. Whoa. That's incredible. That's how he saves us. Says he has cleared away our enemies, verse 15. Well, I mean, the enemies of, of God, they seem to be abounding. What, what, what does he mean by he, he cleared away our enemies? What is our greatest enemy? Satan has been defeated, he's a vanquished foe. What is our personal greatest enemy? It's sin and death. I mean, he, he dealt with them, he cleared them away. How did he clear them away? He, he placed them on his son, and his son bore the wrath for them. He, he cleared them away on that hill. How did he conquer death? Well, his son dies, was resurrected in the third day, so that life and life eternal wins. We were coming home yesterday, and I don't know about you, I think I've mentioned this a few times. I, I love listening to books or listening to things as I travel. I got a couple significant problems. You guys know that. One is, I don't let anybody else drive. I gotta be in control the entire time. Doesn't matter how many hours we're driving. I'm driving, darn it, and I'm fine. But we're going to listen to something. And yesterday, anybody listen to the podcast, Hardcore History? Hardcore History. Uh, sometimes, I mean, let, me, let me encourage you. My son-in-law, Todd Fleming, uh, told me about a couple of podcasts he listened to. And one was coming out of the Mennonite movement uh, right after Luther and the Reformation and what happened in Munster, Germany. It's pretty horrific. Don't listen to it if you have a light stomach. And don't listen to it if... Uh, hearing about how bad our history is as Christians sometimes, even a sect like that. It's kind of like the David Koresh of their day. It's kind of like the Jim Jones of their day. You know, and I, I got to tell you, it was like four hours long. And the guy was incredible. I wish I could tell you his name, who did it. I can't remember. 
But he was spellbinding. And I really appreciate because what I heard him talk about in the Reformation, I thought was spot on what I knew about Luther. But it was really more about this, the, the Anabaptist, which means baptizing again. The Anabaptist who, who literally took over the city of Munster, Germany. And the, the atrocities that happened there. And can I tell you something? It shook me up. I mean, it was, it was hard to hear. And there's times I, I, I was driving thinking, am I crazy to be believing this stuff? I mean, are we all crazy? Are we whacked? I mean, and again, these, these are people who follow Christ. And what, what the author was saying was kind of interesting. He says, you know, was it a good thing that the Bible got into people's hands? Because once the Bible got into people's hands, they thought they had this Holy Spirit authority. And, they, and we do. And, and all of a sudden, some crazy stuff starts happening. And, and I, I, I really kind of had to stop and pause and think, whoa. You see, I come back to that resurrection. I come back to the reality that, I mean, it's just, you cannot deny the fact of the birth of Bethlehem. I mean, it's just such a historic fact that there was a Jesus And you cannot deny that there was a death of Jesus. I mean, you can't deny that he was crucified. I mean, we set our calendars upon it. No one one argues a historic Jesus. They'll argue to their blue in the face, was he God or not? And what did he do? But listen, no one really is going to argue a historic Jesus. There's just too much evidence about him. But it's that resurrection that the Romans could never find the body and they could never produce a body. And then the resurrection that, that they, the scripture says over 500 people witnessed that keeps me going. And really believing the fact that this is God's son who came to deliver me and clear away my enemies and yours, sin and death. He's our promised king to deliver us, it says in verse 16. He's come, fear not. No matter what ISIS does, no matter what this world's going to do, fear not, our God is in control. And I know it's hard to reconcile all that. He's sovereign, he's loving, and look at the world. He has started, his kingdom has come. It's not here fully. That's why he says, pray that his kingdom comes in fullness. Pray. And there's a day coming when it will. He says, let let your hands grow weak. I mean, what happens with fear? What happens when you turn on the TV and you see all the things that you think, oh my gosh, are you kidding me? Don't forget that we win. Jesus wins. He really does. We, we talked about that around the Thanksgiving table. I said, do you think that anyone in our generation really thinks that the hope of the world is the kingdom of God? Do you think that when we see the news and the terrorists, do we fall on our knees and say, Jesus, will your kingdom come? Will the good news of the gospel rule and reign where it is not ruling and reigning? That's the peace of God. That's our hope, Christian. Let me tell you, that is our hope. Our hope is not political. Our hope is not in a new election. Our hope is not in something economical. Our hope is in Christ. That's it. Our hope is in that the kingdom of God would come in its fullness. And this king who came to deliver us, and this king who came to defeat our enemies, who is coming again, now he says, live as my people. Pray that thy kingdom will come. Live according to my, uh, in submission to Christ as king and on mission for Christ as king. In verse 14, it says, a mighty one, a mighty one who will come to save. I, I love this. If you, this is a Hebrew word, Gabor, this, this mighty, the mighty one. And if, if you remember, uh, Isaiah will ultimately say in Isaiah 9, uh, 9 and 6, and we, we again, uh, uh, Chris read it this morning. He says, and his name shall be called a wonderful counselor, 
a mighty God. I mean, that's just part of his name. It's just this, this Gabor, this, this, this God Almighty is going to come. He's a prince of peace. He's an everlasting father. He's the one who's going to come. And he's going to come and he's going to save us. It says that he will rescue us from our oppressors in verse 19. It says he will save the lame in verse 19. It says he will gather the outcasts in verse 19. He says he'll even change our shame into praise. You know how you get this? Let me, let me tell you if you understand this. If you understand, you're the lame. If you understand, you're the outcast. If you understand that, that you're the one who's covered like me on my own in shame in a holy God's eyes. When he says, myself, I'm going to come and I'm going to gather the lame, those who are so broken and crippled by sin that they're dead in their trespasses and sin. I'm going to gather those who are the outside, outside who, who by nature are children of wrath. I'm going to gather those who are, who are broken and oppressed. Those are the ones I gather. And when you get the Christmas story, you see your face in the lame and the broken and the outcast and a God who gathers us together. We are the church. We're those who are called out, ecclesia. We're called out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are the lame. We are the broken. We are the bruised, but we're his. I think we forget that as a church sometimes. We think we're the entitled. We think that we're the better. We think that we're the smarter. We think that we're somehow (laughs) deserving of God's love. It's not true. It's all grace. We are radically his because we are radically loved, but it's all about radical grace. It's incredible what God does to the lame, the outcast, and the shameful. God himself says, I'm going to dwell with you. God himself says, I will save you. And last... God himself, and this is, this is incredible, you, you can't miss this. God himself is the one who says, I will sing over you. God will sing. God sings first. The first Noel, I mean, it's basically, uh, is, is his voice. He says this, he says, he will rejoice. And that means exalt with joy over us with gladness. It's with his whole being, it's with his heart, his soul, I love how one of the dictionaries defined this. It says, in the light of his eyes. Have you seen the light of an eyes of a grandfather or grandmother or or a mother or a father with their child and their eyes light up and they want to sing a love song, maybe a, a, a nursery rhyme or something, just sing to their loved child? This is what it says that God does with us. He sings. And it says something amazing. It says, he will not only sing over you, he will quiet you with his love. Now, this is mighty God. This is Gabor, who's going to have a, such a tenderness in his voice. He's going to quiet you with his love. I mean, it's very motherly. It really is. It's basically saying God's love is, is both strong and mighty and very motherly and tenderly. There's a little bit of a, a, a trying to figure out how to translate this. It, it could be either this. He will quiet you with his love, or it could be translated, his love will cause him to be quiet. Which is basically saying, he loves you so much, he's not going to point out all your faults. He loves you so much that he's going to choose to quiet himself and just enjoy fellowship with you and his son. It's incredible. A God who wants to sing over you. A God who wants to take his love to say, it's okay. And pull you near like only a mother can and say, 
It's safe. And quiet us with his love. It says, God will exalt over us, I love this, with loud singing. This exalt over us with loud singing, it really gives us a picture that that God is going to encircle us. He's going to circle around us to sing a love song to us. And we get, we get made fun of that all these Christians, you know, you, you sing kumbaya to each other. You know, you get together and you have these love songs, these kumbaya fests. But the reality is, is that God's the one who says, I'm going to gather around you. I'm going to, I'm going to sing to you a love song. You think that that's amazing? That's not enough of God. It's not enough that he's going to sing over us. It's not enough that he's going to quiet with his, us with his love. He goes on to say, God will make our renown and praise us along all the earth. He's he saying this, I'm going to look at you as my chosen ones. I'm going to sing over you, and I want the world to know that you are mine. I'm going to praise you so the world knows that there's something incredible about born-again Christians that are just mine. I'm going to make your renown known. You know, this really is the the, the same language that Jesus uses in Hebrews chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, turn to the back of the Bible to Hebrews 2. Hebrews 2, verses 11 and 12, talking about Jesus, it says, That is why he is not ashamed to call you and me brothers, saying, he's going to quote now Psalm 22, a very clear messianic psalm. He says this, I will tell of your name to my brothers. This is Jesus speaking. He's basically saying, I'm going to talk about you to my brothers in the congregation, the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praises. Oh my gosh, did you hear that? Jesus says, I'm going to sing your praises. I'm going to sing over you. I'm, I'm, I'm such in love with you and what I've done for you through my life, death, and resurrection. I'm going to sing about you in heaven. It's incredible, the grace of God. Jesus, that little infant, that one born in Bethlehem, the one wrapped in swaddling clothes, he's the leader of the band. And he sings the praises of his father, of course. But he sings the praises of his brothers and his sisters. Do you hear what I hear? Do you hear a God who sings? Have you heard a God sing over you? Has a God quieted you with his love? Do you know that he is the first to sing? We can't rightly sing the Christmas carols until we understand it's God's song that we join. That his song is actually being sung over us. See, the best way to spread Christmas cheer is to sing loudly for all to hear. But the best way to spread Christmas cheer is to hear that singing is God's voice. That he would love you and me enough to send his son to come and rescue us, to join the chorus that is already being sung. Sung for the Father, sung for the Son and Holy Spirit, but includes us and sung over us in love. May this Advent season, the song of Christmas, make you alive and new in Christ. Let us pray. Father God, it's just incredible that you would not only come and dwell with us yourself, that you yourself would be the one who saves us. And God, if we just had those two things, we have reason to sing and rejoice. 
But just like you, God, you have to lavish love upon us. You, you can't stop loving us. That you choose to sing over us. And not just a song, but loudly encircle us and, and to remind us and even quiet us with your love. God, we're going to hear a lot of Christmas carols. We're going to hear a lot of Christmas songs as we go in and out of stores and on the radio. And, and some of us, we're going to get sick of them pretty quickly. And, but God, through all of them, would you, by the power of the gospel and the Holy Spirit, use them to let us hear your voice. God, rightly, we sing about the newborn king. But for us to understand the depth of that love, we have to hear you sing over us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.